Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian literature for the inebriated. I am Matt Mario Tennis Aces Gerasimovich. And I'm Cameron Lalana. This week, I narrowly avoided financial ruin. Reason? Legally can't say. Method? 3 a.m. eBay browsing. As it goes. <laughs> this is a podcast where me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and a drink or two. This week, we're finishing up our three-week-long series on one of the most important topics in Russian literature, what is to be done. Tonight, we're reading Vladimir Lenin's theoretical work, you know, what is to be done. But before we get into our show, we wanted to give a quick shout out to our newest patron, Paige. Thank you so much, Paige, for supporting the show and keeping us funded through the end of our what is to be done series. Now we will finally know what is to be done, I think, I hope. Um, if you're interested in helping out the show, like Paige, take a look at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. We put a lot of work into our tiers and rewards, and it really helps the show out. If you're not able to support us financially at the moment, but crave the satisfaction of helping your favorite podcast out, you can leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or sign up for our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. Always very exciting updates. But before we get into yep. the reading, Matt, what are you drinking today? I am drinking an American ale called Escapist from Temperance Beer Company here in Evanston. It's got a really fun just logo a lot, of, a lot of cool colors i like the font it's actually super flavorful and i'm not gonna lie it's really good really good okay nice nice yeah what are you what are you drinking <clears throat> i feel like we've switched positions now because i went to the grocery store today <laughs> and i forgot that i i didn't take my id to work so i had to leave Oops. with my tail between my legs and now i have come home <laughs> and made a very very impromptu uh vodka tonic <clears throat> Mm-hmm. With uh, well, that was me like three weeks ago. So. <laughs> yeah, I know. So I'm saying we're we're we've officially only one of us can do one thing out of a time. The other one has to do the you know the alternate. We only have two options between the two of us, really. Perfectly balanced as all things should be. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> yes. Uh, why are you Mario Tennis Aces this week? Oh, I've just been really getting into the uh, the dying competitive aspect of Mario Tennis Aces on the Switch. <laughs> <laughs> I have a bad habit of getting into games as they're either dying or dead. So you you avoid the hype. So you only get the pure game itself. Somewhat somewhat of a gaming hipster, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> how's how's eBay browsing going for you lately? I shouldn't be on eBay at three a.m. is what I uh, is what I've learned from this experience. Mm-hmm. I, I have certain gear which I want to upgrade my setup with, and I have alerts for that. But shouldn't go on if I don't see an alert. That's not a good deal because my. I might make a call thinking, oh, I'll be outbid in the morning. And then for five days yep. following that, no one outbids me. And I get into serious sweats <laughs> thinking I'm actually going to have to pay for this thing. Yeah. 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 Well, yep. thankfully, the shout out to whoever outbid you and uh, relieved you of having to pay for that. <laughs> Unofficially, our, our next patron, whoever outbid me, you saved me a lot of money. So that, that basically, <laughs> we'll send you some stickers. That's worthy of being a patron. Our eBay patron. <laughs> um, okay, well, let's get into what is to be done. And given how the history of the Russian Empire went, it's perhaps only fitting that we finish with Vladimir Lenin's work. Yes. Uh, Before we get into the book itself, because this is a pretty heavily political theory episode, we wanted to basically cover some theory you're going to need to know. So we're going to go talk about, in the episode itself, um, you know, the immortal science of (laughs) Marxist-Leninism, which is my favorite phrase to say. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about just basic Marxism first. So like, what, what is Marxism? A lot of people associate Marxism with socialism as a whole, and 
Today, it's hard to overstate the effect that, that Marx's writings had on socialism as a whole, but socialism did not begin with Marx. And in fact, it, it began in many different places with many different intellectuals writing various things. And they have kind of ideas which we now recognize as socialism, though they certainly didn't at the time because they didn't have that terminology. But basically, by the time Marx rolls around, socialism is already an extant force. They're already having international meetings on it, etc., etc. So really what Marx goes in, and when he is writing, what he is contributing is a sort of coherent theory of history of basically like here is how we see economics impacting society as a whole. And you kind of get into that with his like basic idea of, of the base and the superstructure and all society, the base being materials of means of production, like really like what the economic life of a country and then the superstructure kind of being the resulting like intellectual life. That's a really, really base like generalization, but that's basically what it is. And the theorized that the two affected each other in kind of a circular fashion, which is sort of a dialectical Hegelian view of history. It's really hard to understate how important Hegel was to uh, European intellectual life at this time. And what that means is practically, he came forward and put forth a, a, an idea of work of political economy, essentially, Das Kapital, where he outlines the function of of capitalism in the 19th century and in what that in, in this sense meant was is like how with the advent of industrialization how is that affecting our economy and he notes that although classes have existed throughout all history we are now kind of entering a stage which he proposes to be like we have the we've kind of entered a proletarianization of society where we don't just have many many classes you know we have we're getting down to like the base form of of like capitalists which uh, are, are simply the ownership class, and you're getting to the proletariat class, the workers. And over time, this becomes more and more complex with the inclusion of things like uh, the petite bourgeois, et cetera, et cetera. But it's a basically a, a, a what we might understand as a scientific understanding of economic history and how that runs society as a whole. And following that theorization, he kind of says, well, this modern form of industrial capitalism, it can't last forever. Um, the workers can will never um, keep underselling their labor because in order for this whole system to work a laborer has to produce value which the capitalist then sells at a higher value than the return to the laborer so there's always a kind of there's always a gap between the value of the labor and the value of something is sold at thereby making what we understand to be exploitation and he kind of says well this is not something that can last forever because eventually the workers will realize that uh, they're getting a bum rap in this little did he know <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and there's a lot more to it he of course wrote a lot there's a, many more intricacies to this but that's the basic idea really you should understand marxism as a theory of economics and a theory of history which happens to have a well then naturally it's going to lead to this eventually and then a bunch of other people take that and kind of run with it and go off in a bunch of different directions, which is kind of what we're going to be talking about today, because uh, Lenin writes a lot about Marx's writings, and he takes his idea and, and adds a lot more. And that creates the theory of Marxist-Leninism, which is really, really important because it's, it, is, it is really different from the base idea of Marxism. And we're going to get into why that is today. Yeah, I mean, this was actually, honestly, this is the first time that I had read this. I... <laughs> have referenced it in passing without actually reading it before and it was surprisingly slightly different than i thought it was going to be yeah i i don't know how'd you, how'd you come away from it i know it's not a typical like work of literature like we normally read on the podcast it's very this one's just straight theory whereas the other ones were <laughs> not as much we've gone from political theory pretending to be a book to 
sort of a book, but mostly political theory to just pure political theory. Mm. Um, I mean, it was kind of what I expected from Lenin, which is yep. that like half of it is just him arguing with his contemporaries. <laughs> uh, <laughs> every third sentence is like, as previously written Iskra. And I was like, no, I, I mean, I don't know what you wrote in Iskra previously. I don't know who the Bernsteinists are. I don't know what you've previously written about them. I don't know. I didn't read last week's article in the Robochnea Delia, so I don't know what happened here. So mm. I don't. Mm. I'm not following this at all. But um, overall, it was really to, to the exact same kind of statement you've made, slightly different than I, what I was expecting. And definitely an interesting, because I've, I've not done a lot of work on Leninism of, of all my studies of political science. It's never been a big one for me. Uh, so I, I was kind of interested in the ways that he really developed a lot of the ideas, which I'm familiar with the end point of, mm. but not so much with this kind of early version, because this was written in like 1900 to 1902, mm-hmm. um, which is far before even the, the split of the uh, or the Social Democrat Party into the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks. Mm-hmm. Um, so really interesting to see these early articulation of the ideas and how he argues them. I like that he seems like he is, you know, would have just been an absolutely incorrigible human being based on the way that he describes his <laughs> opponents. Like the <laughs> the absolute satire that is dripping off this man's words throughout the book is just, it would have been unbearable uh, if he was yep. he was writing against you, I feel like. Yep, yep, I feel that. I I can kind of see why he did not get along with a lot of people. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so let's let's get into it. Do you want to start with uh, chapter one? Yeah, I think this episode makes most sense to just go part by part, there being yeah. only five parts. And honestly, if we're going to break it down, there's probably like three main ideas that he goes on <laughs> for the whole thing, kind of expanding on. And like Cameron said, replying to his contemporaries that were writing in uh, rival journals. Yeah, so a lot, a lot of it is, um, here is the idea and thesis, here's why everyone else is wrong, and then conclusion, let me remind you again what the thesis was and about how I am correct. So, <laughs> you know, that's how it be. So, yeah, first yeah. first chapter is called Dogmatism and Freedom of Criticism. He is... <laughs> fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, this is the one I cared about the least, if we're going to be yeah. honest. This was just, like, him setting up his his idea in specifically talking about this concept of freedom of criticism, which he says is kind of hurled at his faction as an insult saying that they don't, uh, they, they don't want to allow like other ideas or criticism of their idea. And he says, well, if you're sure that you have the right idea, why do you need to let other ideas coexist more or less? This chapter is basically him really just kind of laying down all everything he hates about other factions of contemporaries, especially the economists and the so-called Bernsteinists, mm-hmm. which Matt and I promised to each other we wouldn't get into before we started recording. Mm-hmm. And I'm only going to mention them briefly because they really don't matter. No. Um, but really, when he's talking about freedom of criticism, <clears throat> it's important because the the Bernsteinists uh, at this time were, were Marxists or former Marxists who had kind of come around to the idea or at least against the idea of like a, of a worker uprising. And we're coming around to this idea of like, well, let's, we can work, use the system in incremental change to come around to the Marxist end of history. And Lenin basically calls this to be just, he basically, in more articulate words, calls them sellouts and says they're never going to come around and eventually they're just going to be consumed by the system, which they're trying to change from within. And so that's why he's kind of railing against this freedom of criticism because it's often lobbed against his faction by these kind of Bernsteinist factions which want to work within the system and he has no room for that in his in his movement saying that it's basically just it, it's a subversion of everything we, we seek so you aren't even our siblings in arms really yeah they get they kind of 
similarly get lumped in with the the trade unionists, which uh, we'll talk about later. But just this idea of working for current reforms versus a total system overhaul, he is not really that sympathetic to people who are working on things in the short term without long-term aspirations, basically. That's kind of what I took from it. Yeah, that's basically, it's all that in a lot of pages. Mm -hmm. It is like 30, 40 pages, that chapter, or part, really. Yeah. Like I said, not my favorite chapter. Uh, Perhaps not the most (laughs) interesting one in this one. A lot of names. A lot of going off at Martinov and um, Mm -hmm. certain uh, other publications. You know, that fool. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it's really just, it's just an introduction to the rest, which is where you find the majority of his ideas, which is much more interesting. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the spontaneity of the masses and the class consciousness of social democracy, part two. Do it. Talk about it. Go ahead. Uh, So this is, this. there's a lot going on in this (laughs) chapter. Basically, so when we talk about spontaneity, this is something that is big in political theory, or at least socialist theory of the time, of the need for many who were kind of like, the idea that Marx himself didn't come up with, but, you know, like the workers themselves will will come to the edge of like they realize that we need to change things and they'll start uprisings when when capitalism can just no longer be the the movements will will realize that and, and rise up. And Lenin kind of says, yeah, there, there are certainly examples of one factory suddenly having a labor movement, you labor union movement and that shreds the surrounding factories and then we have uprisings and he points to several uprisings in recent history. And then he says, well, that that didn't really lead anywhere. There's all this talk about spontaneity among the anarchists and even um, the Marxist factions that I don't really align with. And they have this, this uh, what he calls kind of a subservience to spontaneity, such that they, they reject any form of like formal organization, which he's really into. And he calls out this idea of spontaneity as something that, that's just an inherently limiting and basically associates it with just pure trade unionism, which... As Matt noted, we'll get into in a little bit and why he's not against trade unionism, but certainly doesn't consider it to be enough. So the the spontaneity and consciousness dialectic, it's something that's really important in the literature of this time as well. So this is really the, the, the period, not when this book was written, but perhaps like given another 20 years and it becomes really important in literature surrounding the revolution and the civil war. Some really interesting things start to kind of happen between consciousness and spontaneity. Katerina Clark talks about this in her book, The Soviet Novel, a little bit, uh, about how kind of, depending on when it's viable, particularly during the new economic policy period uh, following the Civil War, when there's a lot of unrest, that literature will tend to kind of favor spontaneous elements of society in some ways and kind of... it's not always demonized because it's not always necessarily a bad thing, as Lenin notes. Like, it can be fine, but the real thing that needs to happen is there needs to be this conscious group that kind of educates it and molds it and shapes it to be productive within what the larger aim is. And so that kind of it, that kind of is a thread in early Soviet literature as well, where you get like a really just, I don't know, rambunctious factory worker guy who has to learn how to channel his rage to like better the party. Like it's kind of like stuff yeah. like that. And so this is this is really really the age where you're really starting to see ideology in this really political sense try to find its way in like old political forms like a novel which ends up in very interesting things. That's not something that Lenin talks about here in this work, but it is something to note for when we start to do kind of more 
early Soviet stuff uh, so that you have the context for that. I think this is maybe a good time for us to talk about trade unionism. Sure. And what that is and why is Lenin so focused around it. So trade unionism is is still something that we're familiar with generally. When, When we say trade unionism, we really just mean a certain trade forming a union. Still a familiar concept to us. What Lenin is talking about here when he talks about trade unionism is the the groups, of course, unions existed at this time, and they did have certain power. And a lot of of the factions that Lenin is railing against, especially the economists, were really into trade unionism and kind of the, the power that that had. And what he says, or what Lenin says about trade unions, is that that's a good thing, that kind of collective power. That's not a bad thing at all. But it's just not inherently a socialist thing, or at least what he, he what he calls a social democrat thing. And this is something that's still kind of today, a lot of people kind of associate unions with like very left wing politics. But what Lenin points out is there are all kinds of unions. There are monarchist unions, there are social democrat unions, there are liberal unions. So although union politics will allow you to have greater bargaining power against the, the forces of capital, the capitalist class, it's ultimately it's it is that is all it is. It is a bargaining kind of position. And really, if you want to use that trade union politics in a good way, and he thinks that those are a useful thing, you need a, as Matt talked about before, a kind of conscious class who is kind of guiding them, who is who is bringing around uh, a sort of consciousness among them of their positions, uh, of, of what, like, what a class society is. And so he's advocating for the, I think he actually talks more about this later, like the exposure of, of exploitation, and really like, what is what we would later understand or later call the kind of vanguard of, of an educated intelligentsia bringing political ideas to the economic struggle. And he argues against the idea of the economic struggle itself being something that is political, but merely one feature among many, as Lenin uh, would have argues, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, t- he talks a, l- a lot about of what will become the vanguard party, as we'll probably discuss in a little bit. But the, the most important thing, I think, I think this is the chapter where he where he kind of starts harping on his opponents for talking down to what they deem, quote unquote, the, the common worker or the average worker. And, and he says, no, what we actually need to do as a vanguard party is help educate in a way that brings the workers up to our level and does not bring us down to their level necessarily. Like we are not doing the work of an average worker. We're doing something different, something more. And that organization is going to to help turn this into a conscious movement. That's, you know, that's how you get the phrase class consciousness and raising class consciousness to make workers aware of the conditions surrounding their exploitation. So that's this, this is this is a pretty meaty chapter, I think. Yeah, this was where he really this is where he really laid it down. I feel like. Yeah, I think this one and the next one, trade union politics and social democrat politics mm-hmm. are kind of tied together. This is really, I mean, this is mostly about spontaneity and him kind of laying down like spontaneity is, of course, tied up to trade union politics often. Um, but just pointing out that so many people are really into this idea of spontaneity and, you know, this idea that because this is our ideas are inherently right, it's it's just going to happen. And he's kind of points out, well, no, we need organization. We need, as you've said, we need an educated class who's guiding, bringing everyone up to our level. And, and guiding society, basically. Yeah. So Lenin kind of concludes on on a a quote from the, the grandfathers of the generations who say, any fool can bring forth children. And he says that today, the modern socialists, quote unquote, in their wisdom, again, dripping with irony, says any fool can help the spontaneous birth of a new social order. And 
This is, you know, again, that spontaneity is not the end of the world, but you do need some sort of group to help shape that energy, I guess. Yeah, and he calls the people who do not believe in that group kind of, um, uh, it doesn't really translate to English, kvostism uh, or kvostist. Uh, basically, the Russian word for tail is like, you guys are like, you want to follow behind the classes. So when this uprising does happen, you're going to have no control over it. You're going to be basically bystanders to whatever they have done, ended up doing, which could be anything. Mm-hmm. And that kind of gets into, I think, kind of leads into the next chapter, trade union politics and social democratic politics. Yeah. So what happens in this part, Matt? Well, if there were any uh, characters or anything, I could give you a good summary. But <laughs> <laughs> Are you, they has the most important character of all. The working class. The working class. You're not wrong there. You're not wrong there. <laughs> uh, this is the the one where he is responding to a a quote that he really doesn't like that other groups are using in their formulation on the question of what is to be done. And they say that what needs to be done is that uh, we should give the economic struggle a political character. And Lenin says, why? Why, oh, why, oh, why? Do you want to do such a narrow, narrow thing? And he goes on an absolute just tirade about different forms of oppression and how basically this is just an extremely limiting thing to do that is a characteristic of trade union politics. And of course, if you're talking about trade union politics, you're talking about some boys that are a little spontaneous, which you already know by now he is not going to like. And so he links the trade union group, the economists, to terrorists in the same way, saying that they are subservient to spontaneity. And, you know, this might be might be a little surprising. I don't know why. I, is it just me or in the West do we have this, like, association with Lenin and terrorism? Is that a thing? Or is that just me? I think that's, yeah. I th- Well, I think that's because of when you get to the near Civil War mm-hmm. period when the Bolsheviks did kind of take on an outlaw status. Yeah. That's kind of the image that consumes the West. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and so it was like interesting to me to see him be like, stop doing, stop doing terrorism. It's not really helping. It's not, well, not that it's not a tactic that won't ever be used again, but the problem with it is that you can't be just one guy going off and trying to assassinate the czar. That's not actually going to cause the system to end. Like you need a, a more coordinated movement. And at this point you might be thinking, wow, you're kind of saying the same thing a lot of different times. And I would say back to you, yeah, that's kind of what's happening in this book is there's a lot of groups that are thinking very similar things and Lenin is going kind of one by one as to like, you're an idiot because of this and you're an idiot because of this and your ideas suck because of this and that's my book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, keep in mind that he does have a personal dimension to the terrorist element because yeah. um, part of the reason that Marxism really took root in Russia is because uh, of the Narodniki, interestingly enough, of whom Lenin's brother was a member and who did try to undertake a terrorist act, a bombing, which he was uh, Lenin's brother was later hung for. And the government was so focused on the Narodniki that when Marx began to get published, and even as Lenin notes in this book, they kind of considered it to be a really dry theoretical thing that no one was going to read. And they were kind of right, but once Marxism started to kind of get going, that was when the government tried to shut it down. Mm-hmm. And at that point, they, they kind of, the lid was already off. But basically... Um, he is he's taking the experience of his, even his own family experience, his own brother's experience in the Narodniki in that sort of um, spontaneous and even terroristic um, character that that sort of revolutionary activity had at that time. And now he's really laying into it, saying, well, what did it produce, basically? Mm-hmm. Nothing. It was 
um, as I'll say later, was it was even those among them who had a class consciousness and were trying to do the right thing lacked their their organization was primitive. They couldn't act effectively act as they needed to. You said the you said the key word for part four on uh, <laughs> the primitiveness <laughs> of the economists and the organization of the revolutionists. If you want to talk a little bit about that, because this is the one where he gets into like, how do you organize a vanguard? Yeah, I'll, I'll take the first step. I want to talk about kind of the yeah. the history a little bit, since he what, he what he points out is even in relatively recent years, you have a lot of students and. Um, what he's pointing specifically at students is because obviously he has he kind of looks at the intelligentsia as like that kind of vanguard class since they have the ability to take on right what not what he would call rightness of thought but he's really concerned with having the right theory um, because as he as he points out earlier in the book you know if we have if we have compromises well that's that's the society we're going to end up with and end up with so we need to be unbending in our theory uh, not because it's not good to course correct but rather because the compromises asked of us are fundamentally changing the outcome. So we need to have hardness of theory. So we need to have people who are right, right of thought, which is kind of why we need this vanguard. Uh, of course, lower levels of like agitators, you know, you don't need to be so strict with them. But when you're having the guiding people, those that they need to be of, of like well-educated high thought. And which kind of leads into him looking at this revolution, not just as a purely economic one, but one which encompasses all sections of society, student life, religious life, uh, government life, et cetera, et cetera. So when he's looking at, when he's talking about things like what Matt has mentioned, giving uh, economic labor a political dimension, he, he's saying that's stupid uh, because that's just one of many things. When, and he points out, when the students are being put down, that lowers the ability for class consciousness to happen. And he says, last summer when the students were being put down by the government, only Iskra, only the magazine, which I like, was calling for the workers to protect the students. And we need to have, we need to penetrate every level of society, be it economic or not, be it worker or not, in order to have a pan, you know, Russian empire struggle against the czarist system, which even like, for example, the economists didn't think you needed to struggle against czarists. They said, it's just, just do the economic struggle and the liberals will take care of the political element. And Lenin's saying, no, we need to take care of the political element. Otherwise, you know, who knows what's going to end up happening after that. And so he's pointing to these early organizers and, and points out that they were easily taken down because they had a really primitive form of organization. They were above ground. They were openly preaching in the streets. And, you know, they had committees and he kind of harps like, oh, they're like obsession with committees. Um, and that made them really easy to track and follow. And so the police very easily took the students down. And then kind of following that, they were kind of afraid to stick their necks out, which made the the, the workers not trust them because, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and he says we need to have they didn't have the right training. They needed to have better training. They needed to have better organization, which we need to keep going forward with in order to, to do better and better with so we can have an effective vanguard instead of one that just gets kneecapped, essentially, because it does not have the proper training to know how to avoid being taken down by the police, essentially. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I feel like uh, I don't know why I have the, had this perception before, and I'm sure it's one that other people share, which was when you think about this period in this period of politics for Russia, the main thing that you think about is economics. Like you think, you know what, they were just really focused on economics. And that's not really the case in this book. It's actually quite a holistic approach that he is um, advocating for in some ways. Yeah, yeah, it very much is. He kind of, he, in, in this way, he's very much accusing all his opponents of being overly, overly interested in kind of the very same things we associate with this era, mm -hmm. which is interesting. And, you know, kind of he's making the the argumentation for a professional revolutionary class, which some might 
especially his opponents might say, well, why do you need, you know, like a, a group of commissars guiding everyone else along and beating them over the heads with what you, you say is right? And he says, well, because if we don't have people who are guiding us to a certain destination, how do we know we're going to get there? Which, you know, your, your mileage obviously varies. Sure. Of course, saying that where the Soviet Union went, and that certainly colors this kind of argumentation. But I think the basic idea of, well, if you want to guide uh, a society to a certain outcome, you need to take control. This is certainly uh, not, uh, it's certainly a more holistic view on how you take control in the movement of a society from a non-governmental perspective. Yeah, not even that. I think that, yeah, okay. So I think like when we look backwards at it from the Soviet Union, we think vanguard party, elite party, ruin society, boom, done, we got it. But it's it's hard to read backwards like that when you're still quite a ways off from the Soviet Union. And I think it actually is more interesting to think about it from an organizational standpoint, because this probably is what allowed some level of success to occur, which is kind of, he's saying, can we please stop <laughs> creating movements that are so easy to arrest, and then all of our progress is lost. And so this class of revolutionists that he's advocating for, he's advocating for people that are trained in how to conduct like secret activities in a way that is very difficult to be caught by the police, basically. Because he pointed out in this chapter, which was an interesting police tactic that I wasn't really aware of, which was that they would let certain revolutionaries go on and do their things and build their circles uh, for however long until they got to a point where they were almost a threat. And then they would swoop in and they would conduct a huge raid and then they would catch like all sorts of other radicals and revolutionaries that they had no idea about until this one person led them to them which i thought was fascinating uh and it really does it kind of informs the way that we think about what he's saying in this instance i'm not saying whether i think he's right or wrong necessarily but i i think it reading backwards from the soviet union is not always the way to go when you're looking at theory from like 15 20 years before the soviet union really became a thing i think it's also important to characterize it not by like our Disney Anastasia view of what the Russian Empire <laughs> like, but the reality of it, which is that if you piss off the Tsar, you're going to be in Siberia. Mm -hmm. Of course, the idea of sending someone to Siberia is not a new Soviet invention. The secret police is not a new Soviet invention. Right. Secret executions, not a new Soviet invention. That's all characteristic of the Tsarist period. So when they're writing these things, they're writing in, in <clears throat> not an altogether different environment than you might associate with the USSR for how to stay alive and not be executed like his very own brother. Yeah. So, I mean, he, he kind of ends this chapter just by saying that you need organization in order to plan and to educate and to have a successful movement. If you don't have that, you have a spontaneous movement. And spontaneity actually aids the police is the conclusion he comes to. And the way to combat that is through this professional revolutionist class. Yes. And Matt, what is Lenin's plan for directing this professional revolutionist class? It's, it's kind of interesting. It's, it's not the conclusion you would probably think if you could think of anything in the world. It's the newspaper, baby. An all-Russia newspaper, particularly. He's tired of local politics. He's tired of your, your local town paper. He doesn't want it. He wants an all-Russia paper. Number one journalism school is what he's advocating <laughs> for. <laughs> Step one of the revolution, writing classes. Writing classes. <laughs> I mean, given the, given the rate of literacy at Russian society in this time, that might actually have been a very good step one. Yeah, honestly, it was. He, he goes into a lot on newspaper. It might sound kind of silly, maybe, but this was a, a hard thing to pull off at the time. 
I, I think he, he kind of mentions just that whenever these spontaneous elements, he calls them, tried to set up any sort of national newspaper, uh, the police would just come in, raid them, arrest them, and uh, destroy or confiscate their supplies. But if you were to have a professional class that was trained in evading the police and not getting caught, more or less, there would be the potential for some luck if they could have a centralized organ in which all the local papers were feeding. They would be able to use that as a means to direct, to organize, to to gauge the level of response that certain incidences should deserve in terms of attention. And he kind of just says that this is the best tool that we can have for agitation and for education as a whole. It does set up like an interesting problem that is that is to come of just the tension between the central and the local mm-hmm. um, that ends up being like a pretty big tension for Soviet newspaper. And believe it or not, there are people who study Soviet newspaper, me being half of them, half of one of them, <laughs> kind of, sort of, I do. And he, he kind of mentions, like he kind of hints at the fact that it's it's hard to take local groups and combine everything into one central thing. But, you know, ultimately this is not only the the best agitator nationally, but it's also a good way to train people locally. He gets into a debate with somebody who's talking specifically about this tension, who's saying that uh, we shouldn't do a central newspaper right now because what we need is actually to train up our local groups. And Lenin says, how are you going to train up? How are you going to train up local groups if you don't have anybody in your local area to do any sort of training? This is going to allow us to do it on a large scale. And then, you know, you, I guess you can place people locally or train people locally. Hmm. Um, and then it's almost like a trickle down effect, trickle down communism, if, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it makes it more resilient against, I guess, raids, as he points out, mm-hmm. because it would if you have like one local group which is really in charge of that and they get taken down, it's over. Whereas mm. if you have a national distribution, there's flexibility and you can recover from whatever you lose essentially in any given police raid. Yeah, and that's a big that that's a big feature. That's kind of his his general thesis on spontaneity and consciousness applied specifically to the form of newspaper. Uh in that spontaneous things are always easier to be taken down because of their generally because of their locality, it's usually small group of people uh even if it is a large group of people it's generally confined to one area that is you know a group of people that are generally poorly trained and don't have a ton of backing from other sectors of society so the odds of them actually overthrowing a large system is pretty slim unless it's already very very weak and even to run this you can't just like send people out to every given territory because that would obviously pretty be pretty easy to track you need to develop contacts in these areas and, and like forms of distribution and people who are actively involved in like bringing this sort of workplaces. So what he points out is this creates um, what we what we need a is a party unity, you know, strictness of party line. Secondarily, this sort of behavior, this or this this sort of activity, bring the newspaper across uh, Russia um, that that creates party unity because now we're all on the same page of what are we trying to achieve everyone's reading this newspaper the whole way down you're creating you know cells of revolutionaries across russia who are working within their own communities uh so he kind of argues that this is not just a sort of utopian idea i would love to be able to tell everyone but the the fact of being able to creating this the logistics of that creates a real practical purpose and a real practical um benefit to the party itself yeah i think he really understands the power of the newspaper as a newish form uh that can really 
reduced the space of Russia, which is a really giant country. And sometimes we don't think about that, um, but that it allows ideas to spread faster, relationships to build faster. It's super powerful. I, I think that's about all I had to all I had to say about this. Yeah, I feel like the theory episodes are going to be a little bit shorter. And honestly, that's fine because they're pretty thick. Yep, they are very thick. Yeah. Well, if that's all you have to say on this, Cameron. It is. On a scale from one to Yeltsin, how drunk are you? Ooh, okay. I'm going to give myself a four here. Mm. And that's a very intentional four because... Uh, I knew that if I got any further beyond that, I would not be able to co- coherently talk about mm. <laughs> coherently talk about bringing a political dimension to uh, economic activity yes. without <laughs> um, it would just not it would not work. This is this this requires a Lenin is requiring a bit more strictness of party line and and behavior in his yep. book. Uh, I'm requiring myself a bit more strictness of sobriety in order to explain mm-hmm. that. Uh, how about you, Matt? I think I might be exactly the same point because I didn't want to make a fool of myself and end up, um, I didn't want to end up being one of the fools that Lenin rails against, <laughs> you know, how he spends basically his entire, his entire book doing yeah. that. I, I would want to be one of those guys. So I uh, ended up probably about four, maybe a five, maybe a five. Okay. All right. That's yeah. a good place to be. You avoided it. You avoided being one of the people where Lenin writes mm-hmm. a book and like in between all the insults, there's some like really important ideas for understanding <laughs> Marxist Leninism. Yep. But like by and large, that's like teasing out a couple sentences between him trying to like own uh, Martinov <laughs> <laughs> entire yeah. chapter. That's just kind of how he is, though, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think before we put everyone to sleep, unless you use this podcast to fall asleep, in which case. In that case, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> um. But if not, if you're still awake, uh, Matt, what are we reading next week? Next week, we're going to be reading Alexandra Kollontai's Love of the Worker Bees. Be, be sure to come back for a potentially sexy communist surprise. I wrote myself a winky face in the script, and then I started <laughs> laughing at it because I forgot <laughs> I wrote that like several hours ago. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned that because if you didn't, I was going to I was gonna bring it up. Yeah, I see you highlighting it. <laughs> yeah. Is that is that a winky smiley face or just a regular smiley face? I can't no, tell. It's, it, it's winking. It's winking. Okay, perfect. Yeah, I, I think I, I would have called you out if mm-hmm. it wasn't. Okay, okay. <laughs> well, uh, before we let you go, we want to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons that are out here supporting the show. We want to thank Jeff, Janice, Anne, Emily, Madeline, Daniel, Paige, Darren, Gary, Daniel, Jack, Alex, and Roland. Podcasting isn't free and grad school doesn't pay very well. So if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to keep the show running, take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. The music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at Tipsy Tolstoy Podcast or follow our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again soon. <laughs>